Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we will be speaking with Susan Mullen, Senior Vice President, Philanthropy, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health Foundation in Toronto. We will also be joined by Tanya Little, Director of Development and Partnerships with Food Banks Canada. Rounding out our panel will be Darcy Acton, Principal at Milestone Consulting. Today's topic is Growing the Profession, Recruiting and Retaining Fundraising Talent for the Sector. This was a major issue when I started as a fundraiser, Today, two decades later, it remains one of the biggest challenges for the not-for-profit sector. All this and more is coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We have a terrific group with us today. Joining us from Toronto, Susan Mullen. I have known Susan since my earliest days in fundraising. We have both worked for the sector at the national and international levels, and I've had the pleasure of having a dinner or two, or two with Susan in Toronto over the years. Welcome to our little podcast. Susan, you work for Canada's largest mental health complex, the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. I had, a visit, I had the chance to visit you and your campus a few weeks back. I was amazed and I was inspired. For those who don't know about CAMH, where is it and what's its approach to mental health and why is that approach so groundbreaking? I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a, a thumbnail sketch. Sure. Thanks, Vincent. Um, it, so the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH as we're commonly known, uh, in Toronto at least, is uh, an organization that serves 30,000 plus unique patients a year and, and really reflects the diversity of Toronto with a, with a focus, as the name suggests, on mental health and addictions. And I think it's the fact that we've brought together um, the needs of people with substance use issues alongside mental health issues is one of the areas that really sets us apart from other organizations. You know, the two go hand in hand. Um, and I'm, I'm tremendously proud of the research work that we do here at uh, an international level. And that's just a little bit about what the organization is about. Well, thanks. I noticed that... Um one of the things I found really interesting, it's right in the, for those who, who aren't from Toronto, it's right in the, the heart of a, a pretty vibrant neighborhood, Queen Street West. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty open campus. The streets are not, like, I had an, I took an Uber to your office, which is kind of in an interior building. And they drove right up to your building. There was no, I'm dropping you off at the edge of the hospital complex. I found uh-huh. that really interesting. That's new. I think that, you know, that's part of the, the change in the conversation about mental health. We were very much behind, behind walls, literally before, uh, until about, uh, four years ago when we really started, uh, serious transformation of the campus. And now it does, it's part of the community. Um, and that's, to me, that's, um, emblematic of what the conversation around mental health is. Um, doing generally in the community that it's starting to become normal. 
normalized. So, you know, people now walk through the campus. They walk their dogs through the campus. That that didn't happen before. Uh, we were we were hidden away. Um, and our community is a vibrant art space community. It's a fabulous community that we live in, and that makes us a bit unique as a hospital. We're we're in a neighborhood. It was super inspiring. Thanks. Thanks uh, for for sharing that. And if you ever get a chance, uh, uh, for those of you listening outside of Toronto, to just to, to go down into that precinct and, and really wander around, it is an amazing revelation around mental health. Thank you. Uh, also from Toronto, uh, my friend Tanya Little. Like Susan, I've known Tanya for many years. In addition to being a leader in fundraising, Tanya is also an accomplished knitter, as is my wife, Christine. Um, so when they talk yarn, I just get out of the way. Welcome, Tanya. Uh, you work for Food Banks Canada, and it seems every day I'm seeing another story about food or food banks. It's just, it's, it's just sort of really um, become uh, a, a very talked about topic. I hear terms like food security. I see donors making, you know, seven and eight figure gifts to food banks. So what's the deal? Why are food banks on the rise in the consciousness of, of North Americans and Canadians? Um, thanks, Vincent, for having me. Uh, I would say that um, the issue of food security uh, has become more prevalent, I think in large part because we're all experiencing the increased cost of food, and we're all more conscious of food, whether it's like the the notional ride of, rise of kind of like the foodie culture or that we're all, you know, uh, taking pics and posting it uh, on Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook, uh, the cooking shows, et cetera. People have just become more conscious and aware of what and how their food is produced and what the food system looks like, and they're making just different choices um, around their food. And I think as that consciousness has increased, I think the the notion that there may be people in Canada um, who are unable to uh, purchase food or or have the kind of food quality um, and categories that we all, all the rest of us do um, is really disturbing to people. Um, I think it's really surprising when people find out that there is um, almost a million people every single month that rely on food banks um, to be able to sustain um, and, and have nourishment. And I think with that shock comes along the idea that donors have really taken this cause up and have wanted to help transform um, people's access to food and the quality of food that they are currently receiving. Thanks, Tanya. I know that um, just for me personally and our family, we've we paid a lot more attention to food in the last 10 years. And so I thought that that's probably that intersection with the awareness of the need and, and more thought about food has really, really helped. So thanks for that. Um, and from, from near Slave Lake, Alberta, I'm happy to welcome Darcy Acton. I've known Darcy since I first became a fundraiser. Darcy and I served on the AFP board in Edmonton, and we've done many collaborations over the years, most recently as co-instructors for the CFRE review course up in Edmonton. Welcome, Darcy. Darcy, in addition to being, sorry, I cut you off. Um, in addition to being a leader in fundraising in Canada, um, she's also served her community and Canada uh, by being an elected councillor of the Municipal District of Lesser Slave River for, I think, three terms. Darcy, I believe you were in this position during the Slave Lake fire of 2011. What was that like? <laughs> Thanks, Vince. And yes, it's true. I was in my third term as an elected municipal councillor when the wildfires of 2011 went through our community. And so uh, I've been talking a lot about that incident lately because 
I, the office I'm currently in is in a visitor information center, and people who have been dropping into that center have been asking the question what it was like. So, so I have some uh, some practice at the answer. <laughs> it was uh, it was unbelievable in many ways. So there, it was a huge impact on our community and on the province, but also it was in. I'm going to say this, and it might sound funny, but it was invigorating to be involved in the immediate aftermath and the longer-term recovery of the community. And why do I say invigorating is because uh, it, it re really did require the best effort of everybody on a huge team, and we saw the best, the best of each other come out uh, in response to that incident. And so... Um, it was invigorating to be surrounded by the, by such talent, such talent, and and uh, very inspiring also to know that at the provincial level, at the federal level, uh, at the municipal level, and also at the philanthropic level, people were so generous uh, and helped us to recover. We've had a we have had a successful recovery here because of the generosity of Canadians. Thanks, Darcy. Now, for people who don't know, a, a significant fraction of Slave Lake burnt to the ground. Um, I, I don't remember what the fractions were, but it was very significant. Uh, this is like a whole town being um, you know, removed and rebuilt. Huge deal. Yeah, it was so, a, it's uh, a small town. We lost about a third of our structures here, so, um, so it, it was significant in the, the physical loss of structures but no lives were lost in the actual fire event, uh, miraculously. So very similar to the Fort McMurray fire, only their magnitude was bigger. Right. Well, thanks for sharing that for us, and thanks for, for, for serving as an elected official. That's a big job, um, especially in today's marketplace. Thanks, Darcy. Um, thank you all for joining us on this, our fourth podcast. We're excited to hear from you all. Uh, today's topic is growing the profession recruiting and retaining fundraising talent for the sector. When I started my career as a fundraiser, there were not enough fundraisers to meet the need. Today, 20 years later, there are not enough fundraisers. And the need, arguably, is even greater. So what gives? Why haven't we done better? Or have we, and I'm just, just not seeing it? Susan, you've got a, you've got a big team at CAMH. What are you seeing? How hard is it to find and keep good staff? It is hard, uh, Vincent. It is. Um, I think what what I see for for our organization is we've we've brought some really uh, bright young people onto our team. So we're doing some growing from within, which I think is one way to address some of the um, uh, shortage in in talent. But with that comes. Uh, comes a, a need to invest on the professional development side, a need to really create personalized development plans uh, to help people imagine what a realistic career path is. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that uh, the, the expectation of some of our young staff for promotions is huge uh, in a very seemingly very short period of time. So that that's one of our challenges about keeping uh, good staff once we've tried to train them and bring them up to speed is there are other opportunities out there, particularly in a market like Toronto. Um, 
Um, and it's easy, I think, for people to think that the grass is greener. But I think I think for us at CAMH, looking at the you know how we can how we can grow some from within, while also bringing in fresh perspectives from talented individuals who are working elsewhere, has been part of our approach. Hmm. So that growing from within, um, you're a large enough organization that that can really work. Um, uh, but I also love that you, you know, when you do that, you have to talk about the things like professional development becomes a big deal. And I had a little bit of a laugh uh, about that expectation around promotion. Um, I don't know if that I don't feel like that's unique to to uh, to CAMH. Do you think that's is that something that's related to the, a particular demographic, or uh, what? What are other people seeing with respect to the expectations of the up and coming fundraisers? I, uh, Tanya, I would really echo what Susan said. I mean, my team's not a huge team, uh, but I would say over half of my team are, are in the millennial group. And, that, and to be fair, it isn't actually just millennials. It's millennials and, uh, and the next gen up. And, and I would really say kind of um, the biggest trend that I'm seeing is just that desire for continued growth and promotion. Um, and, and it's a lot of it's uh, I have noticed, uh, at least in my own team, a lot of it's about title change. Um, so the job, uh, the, the, they're not necessarily looking for a substantive job responsibility shift, um, but it's to be able to continue to see that progression and that that title chase is happening on a kind of an annual basis. Um, a big piece um, of what I've done, uh, we're very fortunate to have a high level of retention in our development team, um, but a big piece, is, piece that I focus on, like Susan, is that investment in a really personalized um, d- professional development plan as well as really looking to, to diversify the project work that people are doing and responsibilities um, so that people have an opportunity to continue to kind of grow and, and hone and develop the professional expertise, um, but that it's still kind of within, um, you know, a, 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 the reasonable balance that they want in their life because another huge piece around uh, a lot of my colleagues is that I've really noticed a huge desire for work-life balance. Uh, and so it's also trying to balance off that, uh, you know, need and desire to keep growing in the profession with also really wanting work-life balance and kind of how you make both of those two pieces work. So hmm. that's, you know, that's what I would say, at least to echo Susan's point. And I would I would absolutely concur on the sort of title, I'd call it title creep. Uh, and, <laughs> I was going to use that word. <laughs> and, and what I found is what, what, you know, I think people, you go through a performance management process, people are surpassing expectations uh, in their role, and that seems to, the expectation then seems to be that my title will therefore change, while the scope of the job may not have changed. Mm-hmm. And I think we we can box ourselves in and create some real challenges, I think, on internal equity when we allow the sort of title creep to continue and and so I, I think I think we do ourselves a disservice by not being more deliberate and thoughtful uh, on on the titles and and what does it mean to get a new title in my perspective it should mean that the job has changed in some manner um, that is asking you to do more and it doesn't mean that you know you're going to surpass expectations every year um, and get a new title I can right. <laughs> well, no, just, I mean, I've, I've said to my team repeatedly that it's, 
the notion is about you can have the same title for 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's about demonstrating how your competency has evolved, how your responsibilities have increased, and how the diversity of your portfolio has shifted, that that's actually what's important, not the title. And most of my team has been quite happy with that because they do get all of those other things. Um, so being able to keep jobs kind of interesting and broadening scope is, is a way to do that. But I think the other piece is you can't just change titles because somebody wants a change. If it doesn't make sense within your organizational structure or in really what the organizational needs are, you know, you can adapt the structure to meet the needs of the people. You know, people yeah, in talent, I, I, you know, you're there for the organization. Yeah, I think I heard Susan say something similar to that. So I, I, I'm also thinking I, we might have a new title for this episode that has the word title and creep in it. Katya, um, <laughs> uh, I want to come back to a comment you made about that you were you said you were lucky that you've been able to retain your staff. Why do you think Food Banks Canada has been able to retain its staff over the years? What is what is the what's the secret sauce there? Um, or is there some? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is its management style, but I also think it's about it's about culture. So a lot of it is around organizational culture. So how we treat people, how we value people, how we prioritize people, work-life balance, um, and I would say we look at a total, we look, have a kind of total wellness um, understanding and, and approach. And so, you know, there's a lot of flexibility for employees around work from home. Uh, uh, around expectations around how many hours are expected to work, meaning that, you know, there's not an extensive amount of overtime for the majority of staff. Uh, there's just a lot of flexibility if you have a young family. So I think those things on the personal front, as well as um, dollars to be invested in professional development every year, that's not something that ever gets cut. Um, prioritizing and building out of plans and, again, having the ability to look at the scope of somebody's role um, and really understand where they're interested in going and growing and, and see if there's opportunities to continue to allow um, them to hone their skills um, and, and continue to feel really interested and invested in that we are investing in them as employees and committed to them as they are to us. Great, thanks. Darcy, did you want to weigh in with some of the thoughts that you've had over the years with respect to, uh, to, to, to talent, uh, attention, retention, and recruitment? I do. I, I Thank you. And I, I'd like to just sort of contrast what Susan and Tanya have been saying about, I mean, it sounds like the workplaces that you are both in are beautiful, ideal places to work. And I congratulate you for creating those places. I congratulate you. And and let me just uh, tell you where I'm coming from. And so I've I've only ever worked in small shops. And when I say small shop, I mean... I'm I'm the only person in that shop. So uh it is it's here's what I find is very quickly in a small shop of one or two people you hit cap your capacity limit really quickly. And so I'm wondering Susan and Tanya um how much do you attribute the success of your workplace culture and your ability to retain people how much of that is due to the fact that you've properly resourced the human part of your team? So what I'm saying is my experience has been uh, in a small shop, you don't have adequate administrative support so that you can be a good executive director. You can be a great executive director. You can execute the decisions that are made at the governance level only if you have 
great administrative support. And that's often the piece that's missing in a in small in the small shops that I've worked in and in the small communities that I've worked in. So I'd love to hear what 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 happens in a uh, in Tanya and Susan's workplace to, uh, on on that level. So I'm like, you know, how do you avoid hitting the capacity? I I the Susan here, and I would I would say first off, if I painted an ideal scenario, I I'd, I'd want to just add a little dose of reality to it. Um, it's it's not as ideal as perhaps I made out, but it's the direct. What? What? I know. Probably is. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting that you that you talk about it, Darcy. I I've actually worked in one and two person shops. I've been the one person uh, in in a shop. So I've I've worked on small and larger shops. And I think the reality is, you know, we're still stretched here, uh, and and it, it feels, I think, like our industry. We we never can do enough. There's always um, more that can be done and more that we feel like we should be doing to help the cause that we're supporting. So I, I'm not sure that it matters terribly whether it's a one or two or ten person shop or a 45 person shop. There, there, is, there is always a capacity. And I think you know, what I find in the larger shops like I'm in now is the degree of specialization of people that we hire means mm -hmm. that cross-training can sometimes be harder. So somebody leaves, there may not be somebody else who can jump in and fill that role because it's such a specialty role, and the other staff person is also a specialist in their in their field. So I think that's one of the... One of the downsides and one of the things we need to be careful of in larger shops is making sure that we have some uh, ability to sort of look at cross-training. I'll let you talk, Tanya. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love Susan's point just around, you know, ideal shops. I mean, I think that they're um, constantly evolving cultures. And so, you know, organizational health is something that has to get invested in pretty heavily, um, so I, I don't know that I ever want to paint a picture of perfection, but I would say, you know, it's a reasonably good space. Unlike Susan, I'm not in a large shop. I'm in, I don't know, a small medium shop. My team's a, it's a seven person team, um, in the fund development side and, um, they are absolutely stretched. And that's not to say that we don't, um, you know, resource appropriately. We do our best to kind of make sure that people aren't stretched, um, you know, beyond a reasonable approach, as I said, there isn't a huge culture of, like, extensive overtime for for any of my staff. Senior leadership, there's a different expectation, um, but that isn't the case with my team. And I think that there, um, I, I, it's interesting that we kind of have this idea of talking about uh, kind of current issues a bit later, but one of the biggest issues that um, that I have been really honed in and trying to understand is just this idea of valuing decent work within the charitable sector and really looking at that and burnout. And I think that I have taken a, a very concerted interest in trying to understand uh, what burnout looks like and, and also how we make people feel valued. And, and so in the context of team, it's they are stretched, but I'm conscious of there's only so much to get done in a day. And so, you know, Darcy, to your point about there's only so much capacity, there's only so many hours. So we've we have really tried to focus on working smartly, working hard, having a bit of fun, but calling a day a day. And 
and um, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I just I'm so think, glad you said that. Yeah, because I, I think there is this unrealistic expectation, and I just think gone are the days. If you want people to stay with you, you can't have an expectation that they're working 16-hour days, seven days a week. Um, it just isn't feasible, and burnout happens. And the fact is, the to, to, to kind of echo some of earlier what Susan said, like mental health is really critical, and workplace health is really critical, and a culture of philanthropy means not working our people to death either. So I think all of those pieces weigh in to this notion of, you know, not stretching and meeting capacity and just recognizing we're going to do the best work that we can to achieve our mission, but we also have to go home too and, and be okay. Yeah, I love what you said, Tanya. You said honoring decent work. Is that how you said it? Mm-hmm. Honoring yeah, that, decent yeah, work. And, no... mm-hmm. I love that idea because that means that you're you're uh, you're accepting people as human beings and you're creating a civilized workplace for for them. Civilized. It's we're not we're not trying to be superheroes. We are bringing out the best talent in people so that they can deploy that talent in a way that doesn't lead them to be burnt out. And so I think I think really um, one of the ideas that I'd, I'd love to explore is this idea of why do people leave? And how do you... You're reading my mind, Stacey. <laughs> okay, so you have a term now, Vince. No, no it, 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 I, I'm enjoying <laughs> the conversation. This is fantastic. Um, but this, 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 one of the biggest... Uh, identified reasons, uh, well, not just unique to our sector, but in, in the modern workforce for people leaving um, a particular position is is that, for however you want to frame it, that burnout uh, issue, uh, that either their, their, their expectations of what they need to do or their organization's expectations of what they need to do are out of whack with them living a decent life. So... Um, I, I love this idea that you were, you were broaching, Darcy, about, you know, how big of an issue is this in, in our sector, and what are we doing about it? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm going to just jump in um, because the Ontario Not-for-Profit Network um, actually created a paper called Valuing Decent Work in the Not-for-Profit Sector. That's down oh, so it wasn't your word. No. <laughs> uh, honoring, honoring was the word that I think uh, came out. But I, I um, interestingly... Um, this work that um, the Ontario Not-for-Profit Network was promoting was actually came out of a paper between, I think, the Moat Policy Centre and Atkinson Foundation uh, and a number of other groups, and, and it was published in 2015. But it really was this notion of um, increasing dialogue, awareness, and understanding on, on what are the expectations of people who work in the social profit sector, um, and how do we balance those off, and how do we ensure that we aren't experiencing greater burnout and or pushing people out of the sector because of a, uh, a lack of respect for kind of that work-life balance uh, or people's mental health, just, you know, how professional the environments are. Uh, and it's a brilliant paper, and I think that it, it's one of a number of um, – it's one of a number of kind of policy papers or position papers that I think are starting to talk about this um, and really stru- trying to start to shift um, whether it's governance understanding of people and capacity or whether it's executive directors and leadership teams understanding of what are our responsibilities to ensure organizations, you know, have been thoughtful around how they're managing their human resources. Tanya, we're definitely going to put a link to that uh, that paper in our show notes. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yep. Susan, did you want to weigh in on this? Well, I, I, I would. I think one of the um, 
interesting I, interesting challenges I face with a team, my team, often is it not not just the expectations from me or from the uh, president and CEO, but people's own personal expectations and this notion a little bit of, um, you know, if if I'm staying to eight o'clock every night, I must be, you know, I must be doing the right thing. I've got lots of work to do, and 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 being able to, I think, model as Tanya said, sort of the work-life balance, and and saying, guys, we're we're never going to get it all done. There's always going to be another ask that we need to plan for, whether that's a you know major gift or 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 a monthly donor ask. It doesn't matter. There's always another one out there that we have to plan for. So how do we find the right uh, balance and not let people themselves, um, you know, sort of have a badge of honor of, you know, how late I'm working? And I and I think that starts at the top, and I think people need to be really careful about what kind of behavior they model. Again, from that work-life balance, um, not burning out, because it, we know it will lead to burnout. People can't sustain that kind of work pace on an ongoing basis. So. Yeah, modeling is uh, an incredibly important uh, aspect. I think we could do a whole podcast on just, you know, what does leadership mean? Uh, in fact, we're going to do one. Um, so this whole idea of, you know, the, the leaders modeling, you know, I'm always too busy or modeling balance. Um, so I think that's a really interesting. Darcy, did you want to circle back on, on the burnout question? I I do, and I'm, I, think, uh, I think this is – Maybe this is a place where we should focus a little more effort in our professional circles is, uh, you know, I, helping people to, first of all, helping managers to calm themselves down a little bit and not be workaholics, but also having the ability to recognize in their team, so in, a, in their staff people, what are those markers of burnout? And also, not just burnout, but what are the markers of, of disgruntlement or dissatisfaction and what are our respective roles in that? So I, I want to, I would like to cite uh, an article that was handed to me a, a few years ago called Building the Civilized Workplace. And it's by Robert Sutton and it appeared in the McKinsey Quarterly in 2007. So, you know, it's a few years old, but this article talks about the you know, uh, it's a bit cheeky, in fact, uh, and it talks about uh, not being a jerk, right? So where are the, where are the rules of engagement and how do you create a workplace where jerks are not tolerated? And and it, it's, uh, I mean, it is a little cheeky, but, but it comes right down to the fact that if your workplace is not civilized, the price you pay, the economic cost to all of that is enormous. Plus, you make people just end up feeling miserable. And there's nothing really worse than feeling miserable about the job you're in and not and having the feeling that nobody cares. Nobody cares that you're feeling miserable. So, of course, uh, it might not be burnout in the classic sense, but it, it's all about organizational culture. And, you know, I, 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 I would love to come and work for Tanya, or Susan, or Vincent, because it's, it sounds to me, and, it, and I know you professionally and personally, to be great human beings and to recognize the humanity in others. And I, and I think. Oh, thank God, I'm not a jerk. 
Bueno. I don't tolerate jerk. You know, it's a great line. I, 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 I again, uh, you know, it's, it, it, that is such an important comment that it does hit the nail on the head. Uh, uh, I use a stronger word with my children, um, which I won't use on the podcast, but uh, but don't be a jerk is a great one. Um, Tanya, Susan, what, is, what are your what thoughts is the word? on <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to use it on the podcast. <laughs> does, it re- does it rhyme with castle? No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> okay, no, okay, carry on. So I was actually, um, uh, not that I'm not fascinated by Bruno, but I it was interesting that when I went back to kind of look at what the original title was of the podcast before it got changed a couple times, um, um, I, it was this, it was what was interesting to me was just in fact how are we growing the profession and how are we recruiting and retaining, um, and it made me um, think about um, a program that a number of us have been either mentoring on or working as part of over the last two years, which is the Fellowship in Inclusion and Philanthropy, um, and that's been a really important um, project. Um, I think because. Um, being able to look at how we are recruiting people into the sector who may be in other professions or or may have had other professional training, um, and then also um, developing very clear paths for um, kind of leadership development and growth um, from the communities that make up our beautiful multicultural country. Um, you know, it is something that we have to be more proactive on, and um, and I think this program has been good at, at being able to build a couple of cohorts of about 70 leaders now um, who've been able to, to work through that program over the last few years. But it just made me think about, and I'd be curious to hear from others, just around the notion of not just about young professionals coming in or staying in the sector, but also this notion of um, other mid-professional careers who are transitioning in from other backgrounds. So I'd be so before we so, so th- just before we get there, Tanya, that's I'm so glad you brought up the diversity and inclusion fellows. Um, uh, uh, one of the things that we um, would be super helpful because it's, it's such a successful program, and I know about it because of the AFP Canada Foundation um, participation in that. And, and but if you is it are you are you able to just very quickly sketch that out for the rest of Canada because this is really a leading program that's emerging out of Ontario, which we're going to hope to model across the country. But um, but just for folks who may not be as familiar as folks in Toronto, um, yeah. is it possible? Like sure. I don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, no, I know you're not no. the, the, the spokesperson, but it, it, it's such a great program. <laughs> please please share a few minutes of it. Yeah, um, well, about, well, interestingly enough, about six years ago, um, this actually started with kind of building um, knowledge around kind of what philanthropy looked like in various communities. And those communities could be ethnocultural communities, they could be gender-based communities, they could be religious groups, it could be, it was a broad spectrum um, of different groupings of individuals across the country. And so 12 workshops were held and a lot of learning in kind of community building um, and knowledge um, came out of that initial sharing. Um, And then from there, there was, I think, a real understanding that there was a huge gap, um, not from this project in particular, there has been an ongoing recognition that as a sector, we have a great deal of work to do um, to be building um, greater leadership capacity. Um, And I think that there was recognition after we had done these um, 12 workshops that there was an even greater um, interest and desire to be building 
um, a more open and inclusive space for people um, from various communities um, who were working in the, at the social profit sector or had an interest uh, and wanted to grow and develop their leadership skills so that they could, in fact, be the next generation of leaders in the sector. Um, and so the Fellowship in, in Inclusion and Philanthropy program was developed, um, and it ran over two years, and there were 35 individuals who competed for a spot in this program. They received um, um, ongoing mentorship for, I think, eight to ten months. From uh, They were matched with a senior leader in the sector, as well as about $5,000 worth of education investment. Uh, and they had a lot of uh, additional training above and beyond that um, around diversity and inclusion, um, beyond kind of the leadership skills um, and fundraising knowledge that they developed so that they could, in fact, really grow um, their knowledge and their understanding and be champions um, uh, in the sector and for the sector. And so that program has just um, completed, in fact, graduated its second cohort of individuals. So it's been quite... Um, uh, it's been quite a powerful program. I mean, Susan, I believe you were one of the mentors of the program, so I'm sure you could add in what your experience was like. But it's um, it, it really was quite – it is quite a groundbreaking program, and I, I think um, it was a proactive way that um, uh, initially a couple of chapters uh, being Ottawa and Toronto and then eventually um, AFP Foundation and kind of with a focus in Ontario to really kind of address that need um, – within the Ontario landscape and see what we could do to be more proactive about developing new leadership. That's the and I, I would it's it it it's been a really interesting process to be a to be a mentor uh through this program and you know for me as when I think about recruitment, you know, you'd look around at a fundraising professional event and and I have to say it's heavily uh white, it's heavily female. Uh, and so finding some balance, you know, we, we work, you know, in Toronto, I'm in a hugely diverse community. Our boards are asking how do we outreach to some of the new Canadian communities. And unless we can reflect some of the diversity of the city and our staff, it's pretty hard to legitimately go out there um, and and ask for support. So I think, you know, again, to, to Tanya's point, it's, you know, it may be ethnocultural, it may be... In my case, I'm a mentor because of the LGBT community. So, you know, all of, you know, there's a whole diversity that we need to be thinking about, at least in the urban centers. And for me, that's, you know, that's my experience is in Toronto. And I, I don't know how relevant it is in, in all of our urban centers or other communities, but um, it, it, it's been an important opportunity here. Thank you, Susan. I, there's a huge resource that's come out of that, too. I think we'll put that in the show notes around the diversity and inclusion website with tons of really useful, practical, tactical pieces that folks can uh, grab into when they're working with uh, uh, diverse and, in and inclusive communities. Darcy, did you want to offer any comments on what we just heard? I, I, I will. And I, the thing I wanted to ask about, actually, and it, and it is related to attracting the comment on attracting people into the profession uh from a from diverse backgrounds uh, and trying to really help our profession to better reflect the demographics that we serve and so here in northern alberta there's a bit of a different demographic landscape but so i guess here's what i'm going to i'm going to just 
go slightly off here and say that I was going to ask to attract people into a big metropolitan center, so Toronto or Calgary or one of the bigger centers, I'm sure there are challenges to attracting people in, but I, I will say that the, the contortions we have to do to try to attract people from outside into small rural communities to do professional work is in, it's enormously challenging. And so there's a cultural shift that has to occur um, for people coming in from a metropolitan or very urban setting. The, just the shock of living in a small town, uh, that alone, that alone uh, <laughs> is a major turnoff for people. And then, of course, it, it, it requires commitment to live in a small town uh, and 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 apply your talent and apply your professional expertise in a small shop and in a setting where uh, the corporation that you're coming into or the not-for-profit organization that you're coming into uh, doesn't have the it does, it's not set up the same way that you might have come from so so I, I think it was Susan Susan or somebody earlier said that this or maybe it was Tanya I can't remember now but the challenge of attracting mid-career professionals from outside of our profession mm, yes. to come in and get your feet wet in philanthropy and fund development uh, I think there's there's a, a treasure there that can, we can extract from but also what are the challenges uh, not not just from other sectors or diverse backgrounds but if you're thinking about trying to attract people into a small town setting so you know there's a lot of work going on in rural and small town Canada uh, where we need to attract people in who have a skill set that doesn't exist. It's, it doesn't exist in our communities, uh, and, and the, the huge challenge of, of recruiting for those positions. Well, I'm not the least bit surprised. Thank you, Darcy. I'm not the least bit surprised that we were able to to have this sort of 20 to 25 minute conversation. I'm sure we could have hour long conversation. And I heard a couple of new podcast topics. We need to do an entire podcast on diversity and inclusion. We probably could do a whole podcast on the, the urban-rural divide in our sector and uh, or the big shops, small shops. So those are fantastic uh, comments, and, and uh, I know some of you are probably itching to, to even go further, but we also have to be mindful that, uh, that I, I, I've got to start drawing this to a close. So um, I'm wondering, um, you know, first of all, thank you all. It's a fantastic conversation. Um, uh, I, 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 the, the resources that came out of this podcast um, I think this is the first time out of the, the four that we've done where people actually um, were able to, you know, directly quote papers or um, point to websites or initiatives. So we'd love to have that in the show notes, and we'll we'll put that there. Again, not the least bit surprised with the group we had around the table. But be, before we go, I, I want to spend the, the last uh, 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 five or eight minutes just just giving people a sense, uh, uh, an opportunity to hear a little bit more about from each of you. Um, so I'm wondering if, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about what you're working on, you know, uh, what best places for people could reach you or what you care about. And I'm, I'm going to start with with you first, Tanya. Um, what do you want our listening audience to know? 
Um, okay, so I would say the area that I'm uh, really passionately focused on right now um, is actually related to a little bit to our topic um, that we've been talking about, which is specifically around how the social profit sector is dealing with succession planning, um, and even more specifically, the role of women in leadership. Um, when I look around the charitable sector, I think it was Susan earlier who made reference to the fact that we're so female-dominated. But yet, if you look at the leadership roles, um, it is not female-dominated. In fact, more and more, there are um, men being parachuted in from the corporate sector um, to be at the helm of many of these organizations. And, and I see that as a, as a real challenge for the sector. Uh, and I, I'm also just curious, um, you know, why that is and what we can be doing to address that. Uh, I'm working with a, a small group of colleagues um, on a human-centered design project actually looking to do more research on this topic. And so this is kind of a passion project, uh, uh, research, uh, learning, uh, connectivity with other professionals who are kind of concerned about this. Um, so that's kind of part of what I'm spending my time on. And I think the other thing is um, – bringing MISREPT, uh, which is something that was started out west by Beth Ann Locke and Roy Green, um, to Central Canada. And so that's really bringing uh, women together to talk about um, issues in the social profit sector that they are addressing and just increasing the conversation. So that's kind of where my, my fun time spent when I'm not with my grandchildren or yarn, as you earlier alluded to, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tanya. Um, yes. did, you mentioned, you said, you said something that Beth Ann Locke and others started. Well, I didn't quite catch it. It was called uh, it's what? It's called MISRUPT. And what it, what it is, is it's actually a coming together of women to specifically. Oh, address. MISRUPT, like M-S. Yeah, dot R-U-P-T, as in to disrupt. Awesome. That's great. So disrupt with a MIS in it. Yes. That's that's awesome. And and people can Google that and 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 yeah, find it, or is it more? Yeah, they can find some information on Misrupt, and it's happening right now on the west coast. And uh, myself and Jen Love are bringing it to Central Canada. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um. And and I, you know, as as the lone uh, representative of of uh, of the minority gender, although not the minority in leadership, as you most correctly identified, and that I've always wondered about that too. So I'm glad that you're working on that, Tanya. That's really important. Um, I want to turn it over to uh, to you, Darcy. What do you want us to uh, to hear? What's important to you? Uh, I know uh, you've got a big move coming up, uh, or at least doing some work in a different place. I don't know if you want to share that with us, but uh, come. <laughs> That's good. Speaking of speaking of the West Coast, I'm glad to hear that Ms. Rupt is uh, got to start in the West Coast because that's where I'm heading in a couple of weeks. So uh, I have wow. I'm starting okay. a new opportunity here. I'm going to take a temporary job with Mercy Ships Canada and I have this fantastic opportunity now to uh, really I'm so looking forward to this opportunity to learn to, to well first of all to learn but also to be uh, involved with an organization where I'm not the only one there that was, that's going to be different just in itself but you know the other really interesting thing for me personally is this will be the first time in my life when I will spend the winter in a place other than northern Alberta. So I'm in for a, a climate shift. I, I'm going coastal, as we like to say. <laughs> going That's coastal. Amazing. So, and yeah, it is amazing. I, I really, I'm really looking forward to the, this change. So I'm in transition. I'm one of the people that, that uh, is uh, leaving a job to start another one and 
uh, I'm acutely aware of the impact on the organization that I'm walking away from. So the, this topic today about retention and recruitment, uh, there's some, I have some real life experience right now going on. So, so, but, but aside now, from that. Who, who are you working with at Mercy Ships? Uh, Tim Maloney. He is. Tim Maloney, the, okay, yeah. I wasn't, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't sure yeah. who, who that was. Good. Yeah, Tim's, yeah, Tim's the national know. manager. Yeah, Tim, my Good. AFP colleague, and uh, so I've been a member of AFP Edmonton and area, but I also joined the Vancouver Island chapter uh, recently as well. So, so I'm really looking forward to the opportunity as well to connect with that chapter and meet some people out in, in that demographic, and uh, I'm sort of getting back into professional practice after a few years away doing recovery work here and uh, delving into economic development. As I've said, there's a lot of similarity between economic development and philanthropic development. It's all about relationship building, as we know. And I think regardless of the sector that you're in, the topic that we talked about today, creating a human workplace for humans to deploy their talent uh, it doesn't matter what sector you're working in, and it doesn't matter what size of a community you're working in. The fundamentals are all the same. So, uh, yeah, I'll check in. I'll check back with you after my my opportunity here on the West Coast, and uh, who, who knows what next adventure awaits after that. Well, enjoy the liquid sunshine, Susan. You get the last word. You get to close this out. Tell us, tell us what we need to know about what's going on in your life. So I'll pick up on a bit of the theme that I heard from Tanya and from Darcy, which is a little bit about the sort of continuous learning and, and testing new ideas. And for me, it's uh, at a more um, uh, job job based level. And I've you know my background has been major gifts and campaigns uh, for the last uh, dozen or so years, um, and have recently sort of moved to a mass uh, approach and looking at uh, how how I start to really build my understanding of what what the sector can do from the digital side of the world um, how do how are we acquiring new donors what what how do we appeal to a different audience so we talk about it for staff how do we reflect you know and how does our staff reflect the community but how does our donor base reflect the community and how do we start to bring people in at different levels because frankly i'm i'm worried about what i see in toronto as the sort of retirement of many of our very traditional older philanthropists who have been exceedingly generous with many organizations, most of them, over the years, but who are, you know, who have reached sort of certainly professionally retirement time and will will be handing the reins to the next generation. And I don't think we've figured out how to really fully engage that next generation in, in the work that we do in our organizations because it's much more to me, it's much more about the cause and less about the organization. So partly I'm starting to see that through the work I'm doing uh, in fundraising and being much more focused on the math side and, and more innovative programs on the corporate side. So that's that's me. Well, thanks, Susan. And that you've just given me another podcast topic about the, uh, the aging and staging of our philanthropists. So I'll have to figure that out. I want to thank each of you for joining us on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. Look forward to uh, many more conversations with all of you. That's a wrap.
Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will tune in again next month when our panel will include Alison Pitscalny from Telus Spark, Stephanie Rayner Hohall, and Dale Boniface with Give Canada. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.